0: Well, I've got a little game for you, Tim. A little game I call Pappard or Nielsen. You see, one of the ways the younger generation is consistently disappointing and annoying is their failure to distinguish between the various icons of the golden age of filming. George Papard and Leslie Nielsen were both romantic leading men of the 1950s who eventually had second acts of their professional lives in 1980s comedies. And man, if I had a nickel for every time somebody confused George Papard and Leslie Nielsen I'd have some nickels. So uh, I've got two parts to this uh, little quiz for you. First off, the basics. Uh, so for every one of these questions, of course, you are to answer either Papard or Nielsen. Kissed okay. Audrey Hepburn on screen. Nielsen. No, that was George Papard in Breakfast at Tiffany's. See? This is one of the, one of the mm-hmm. classics. Uh, kissed Debbie Reynolds on screen. That mm-hmm. Leslie Nielsen. That was. That was Leslie Nielsen in Tammy and the Bachelor. Uh, Canadian. Ooh, Canadian.
1: Uh, that's a Leslie Nielsen.
0: That is. He was born in Regina, Saskatchewan, and he was actually awarded the Order of Canada in 2002. Well deserved. Uh, older in 1980. Older in 1980.
1: I'm to say Papard.
0: No, Leslie Nielsen. Uh, Nielsen was born in 1926. Papard was born two years later in 1928. Uh, lived to an older age. Hmm. I'm gonna
1: say Leslie Nielsen.
0: Uh, that is, that is, yeah. Sorry, kept kept act, acting well, well into old age. <laughs> maybe long after he should have. Maybe I don't know. Um, yeah, he died in 2010 at age 84. Uh, Papard smoked his whole life and died in 1994 at age 60. Uh, married five times. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, Papard. That's right. Uh, uh, George Papard, yeah, he's married five times. Uh, Leslie Nielsen, however, was married four times. So uh, <laughs> was they, they got around. Uh, now we'll move to quotes. I'm going to quote you uh, a character from one of their movies, and you tell me which which actor, and if you can, what film. Yes, I said Mayday, Mayday, Mayday.
1: Oh, that's, uh, that's a that's a Papard
0: no that's actually leslie nielsen and it's from the poseidon adventure where he oh. played the captain <clears throat> i am serious and don't call me shirley
1: well that's leslie nielsen um, that's of airplane. course
0: yes from airplane right the whole town is infested with killer cockroaches i repeat killer cockroaches wow uh leslie nielsen no that's george pappard any guesses as to the film
1: uh is it called killer cockroaches
0: no but it is called damnation alley I love it when a good plan comes together. That's George Pappard. Uh, a team? Exactly. Nice beaver. Uh, that is Leslie Nielsen uh, from
1: uh, oh, um,
0: Naked Gun. That's right. And and for, for our friends at home, he's referring to a stuffed beaver, like an animal uh, from a taxidermy-type project, um, to which... Uh, Priscilla Presley says, thanks, I just had it stuffed. Uh, and uh, our last movie quote, welcome, Nestor. I'm from Earth. Ever heard of it? Uh, Leslie Nielsen? No, George Papard. <laughs> and this is a uh, great, great uh, Z-grade George uh, Cor- uh, George Corman? No, uh, Roger Corman. Roger Corman? Science fiction film. A, one, of the, one of the gems of the early 80s. Uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, But wow. jo- George Pappard played the cowboy. Mm. So now I hope you can see that these two actors represent two completely different ends of the cinematic spectrum, and we won't be confusing them ever again. Next time, Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. And scene. Well, welcome to The Monty Hall Effect, the podcast where we talk about science fiction films. We're your hosts, Tola Martz and Tim Lloyd. Today's film is our oldest thus far, 1956's Forbidden Planet, made by Fred M. Wilcox, whose other major contribution to cinema was also in like the National Shrine of Great Films or whatever, Lassie Come Home. Hmm fantastic eclectic eclectic director that fred Ed wilcox you know you, you you take what uh what mgm gives
1: you i think is how it worked back then
0: i think that is how it worked i don't think directors had a uh, right of uh uh you know i don't think they to do whatever they wanted to like nowadays mm-hmm. so what'd you think tim so this
1: was uh the first time that i had ever seen this movie uh, it, it has been in, in the list of, of classics that uh, I had not yet seen um, and had really only only heard of in in the opening song to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'll, I, I I went into this as cold as I could. We, we did watch um, we did watch the trailer. Uh, our eight year old loves watching trailers, and so um, since we uh, be watching it with us uh, as as they did when we when we had. Uh, you all over to our house to watch this together. Um, they wanted to watch the trailer first, but that's all that I knew. That's all that I knew coming into it. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was um, equal parts uh, fascinating movie history and um, maybe uh, maybe not so shockingly uh, uh, overly sexist and and misogynist.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were there were several, there were several points in there where. Uh, uh, I looked over, you know, your you, your wife em- and uh, Emily and I had uh, were joking around about what do you say? That kept we kept saying that at the screen when uh, when characters in the movie would say things that were just um, you know sort of like uh, cheerfully predatory comments from uh, oh, yeah. members of the crew. <laughs> it's like uh, what 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 do you say? So that became a, a running motif in our mystery science theater three uh, thousand ish. Uh, viewing of this film, which is also this is the first film that I have that you and I have reviewed that I haven't watched either by myself or just with Tracy. Hmm. So the act of watching it communally uh, really made it uh, a different uh, a different kind of experience a little bit. Um, it was, but it was fun. It was fun. So how do you how do you want to get dive into this? Do you want to just sort of start working through from the beginning?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know, and, and because this movie really, really set the tone for so much science fiction, especially in the late 50s and and into the 60s, but, but it echoes into today even, uh, I, I thought it'd be interesting to, yeah, kind of, you know, start off with, um, you know, we, we get this, this cool sort of introductory, uh, you know, background speech about, you know, when we are, and it's, you know, the year 2200 or so, and, um, you know, men and women in chemically fueled rocket ships landed on the moon uh, as kind of our back backdrop, uh, which was a like that alone kind of startled me a little bit. Like, men, wow, men and women landing on the moon in 1956—that's uh, a pretty good, uh, pretty good start um, downhill from there. But but we'll we'll get there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we see, but we see this, uh, we see a flying saucer uh, as Thank pretty you. much our first shot. And so my, my thought was, oh, this is going to be something like the day the Earth stood still, a very similar kind of visual motif, but uh, but we find out pretty quickly that it is not an alien flying saucer that is a that is a full of red-blooded American males. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, and in fact, uh, you know, the whole flying saucer thing is interesting because flying saucers as a visual motif didn't really take off until about 1960, I'm sorry, 1950, and uh, you know, there were a couple of reports of things out West, but I think I've read someplace that this movie was part of kind of what enshrined the flying saucer as a thing. Like when people described alien encounters before uh, this movie or before the early 1950s, they didn't usually talk in terms of flying saucers. But after that, it was all people. could. It was always flying saucers, flying saucers, left, right. And everywhere, so it became part of the visual vernacular uh, for thinking in terms of spaceships. And in fact, um, the spaceship, the special effects from this movie were reused in a number of uh, Twilight Zone episodes, mm-hmm. uh, as was uh, Robbie the robot, uh, used in many science fiction films after that. So, so, so there's the obvious connections to later science fiction films. But I just found fundamentally the structure of this movie reminded me so much of a Star Trek episode, right? Like it's so clear that uh, uh, Roddenberry must have loved this film. I've never really read him talking about this, about this film, but I mean, it's really, it's like a 90 minute uh, Star Trek episode and you know, it starts off with the crew on their way someplace and the crew is talking about the mission and what's gonna go on in the mission, and then the mission happens, and then, then at the end of the mission, uh, you know, the crew is flying away, summarizing what happened in the mission, and it's you know, very, very uh, Star, Star Trek-y. So uh, I think Star Trek owes a lot to this film in, in a way that other science fiction films don't have that same, uh, that same motif. Uh, that, that Star Trek used so well, but anyhow. So yeah, so there so there is the voyages space. of the United
1: Planets cruiser C fifty seven D. Yeah, right. For, Even over uh, many year mission to uh, go do something and find unattended young women on on strange planets.
0: Right, and and harass them repeatedly. All right, so uh, yeah, they're on their way to uh, a planet. <laughs> it's funny, they're on their way to a planet uh, where the. Uh, what a colony colonizing ship, scientific ship, uh, crashed like twenty years before something like that, and like nobody's nobody's heard from them since then. Uh, and they're like, uh, I guess they're the rescue party, but they're like twenty years later, and they've been they've been on they've been on the road for like a year. So it's not like they've been on the road for twenty years, right? It's not like they were dispatched right after the accident happened. People sat around for like nineteen years saying uh what was it was it the Bellerophon was that the name of the ship yeah I think so something something like that like like the Bellerophon crashed it's like uh, uh hey um we need to at some point uh mount a rescue mission right let's uh oh hey it's been 19 years let's mount a rescue whatever whatever happened to those guys you ever, remember the,
1: the Bellerophon you know? yeah yeah the Bellerophon um, yeah, and it's only, uh, right, it's a one-year journey, uh, there's some, some explanation in the, in the intro about how they can travel faster than the speed of light, uh which is kind of cool, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of, uh, again, you know, looking at what other, what other movies kind of echo this, uh, right, it's a bit of an Aliens kind of setup of, you know, hey, we, we sent out this colony ship, and, and then we didn't hear from it, uh, although, like you say, a little bit longer on the response than, uh, the Aliens. Um, I like the, uh, So one of the first interior shots that we get is of the bridge of this ship, Um, and and it takes a minute to kind of get a sense of the the scale of it, but the the bridge, too, kind of reminds me of um, the, what's the name of the um, Marco Anaros' ship uh, from the the final couple seasons of The Expanse? Uh,
0: and that is this, like, I'm going to lose all credibility with you, Tim. I have not seen the last couple seasons of The Expanse. Uh, I am it. a couple seasons behind, as part of my general attitude of never having enough time to watch anything on television. So, uh, I am, I am behind on my. I, I love that show, and I just, it's all sitting recorded on my, uh, whatever they call the thing that you record things on nowadays. Uh, you know, the, the DVR, and mm. I just haven't seen it. So well, I'm I'm okay. a bad human being. Well then uh, when you when you do get to the <laughs>
1: to the seasons where uh, where yeah uh, where where Marco Anaros is, is uh on the attack, uh, he's got a, a an interesting ship set up where the bridge is this multi level thing like like what we see on the bridge of this vehicle here. Uh, so you've got sort of a two level thing where you've got some maybe some science officers or whatever up on the up on the top and then uh everybody's gathered around the sort of astrogation kind of kind of set up around the middle. Um and we're introduced to a good chunk of the crew uh just in the first couple of minutes. Uh you have a doctor, you got a you got a commander, you got a second in command, and uh one of you know and, and this is of course when we meet uh Leslie Nielsen, uh young young, good-looking Leslie Nielsen.
0: Right, and basically, I don't want to say the Kirk role, more of a sort of Picard, kind of a halfway between Kirk and Picard, but his first officer is definitely the Will Riker uh, of the ship. Oh, 100%. Yep. A uh, eager eager in every sense of the word young officer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, so we've got a, a flying saucer full of uh, I think we learned that it's about, what, 14 or 15? crew. So, so the, I, th- I
0: thought I thought it was eighteen at the beginning. Yeah. I think it, yeah, something something like that, less than twenty.
1: Um, and uh, yeah, so they're on they're on this mission, and and we one of the first things that we see them do is drop out of light speed, which is kind of cool. Uh, this this seeing on screen this concept of like what is it what does it mean to the human body to be traveling faster than light? Uh, I thought they had this really uh, neat setup that. Again, we see in, in, in so many other science fiction since then of uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna drop out of light speed. It's gonna feel super weird, and we do this like uh, they sort step into these uh, you know, almost like transporter looking looking devices mm-hmm. um, to sort of prepare themselves for this drop out of light speed.
0: Yeah, I actually what it reminded me of was the. Uh... The tube that Superman goes into in Superman 2 when he's gonna, when he's, uh, loses his powers and, uh, the, the bright light goes off around him and, uh, and then later in the film he steps into the same tube to, uh, not lose his powers when the, when the rest of the, when the Zod and his guys. Anyhow, it had that same kind of effect of the, uh, it's like a special tube that either protects you from Something outside or whatnot, but it reminded me of. Superman. Yeah,
1: uh, and so let's see who else do we get to meet? I guess the the other the, the other Star Trek type character is is the Doctor, right? So the, yeah. the Doctor is sort of this this combination of uh, he's he's the straight shooter of all of them, right? He's, he's really just there, uh, to keep the crew healthy, to keep the the captain on track, um, and doesn't doesn't get involved in any shenanigans.
0: Right, and there's also uh, I don't know when we meet uh is he, does he go by cookie or cook cookie i think he goes by cookie so uh earl holliman uh was an actor that uh listeners of a certain age will remember from television shows in the 1970s he was on Woman with angie dickinson uh he's just a character actor he was around forever but uh in fact he's oh uh, he's still alive, as a matter of fact. My, uh, yep, he is 93 years old. So, Earl, if you're listening, uh, you're a fun actor. So, so anyhow, he plays a, uh, a really severe alcoholic, uh, but uh, a fun, fun alcoholic, not a uh, not a sad alcoholic like most al- alcoholics. And uh, he's the cook also. So, uh, and he—that's kind of the sum of the. Ca- oh, uh, Richard Anderson from Six million, Six Million Dollar Man. Plays the chief, which is basically the Scotty type character. Mm-hmm. Um, again, uh, referencing the Star and kind of stuff, the guy who can get stuff done. Um, but uh, that's fun for those of us who watch this. And I think Richard Anderson was also in the Bionic Woman. I think he was uh, he was Oscar Goldman in in both shows. But anyhow, doesn't matter. There's your there's your there's your major crew along with uh, a bunch of red shirts.
1: There's our crew, and, um, and boy, so many Richards. We'll get to them soon enough. Um, uh, so we arrive at this planet, and they start uh, you know, communication with the folks uh, down on the planet. And their first response is is basically, uh, "Why are you here? You should please go away now." Right, get lost, effectively. Uh, and you know, being being a crew full of uh, red blooded American. Um, servicemen, I guess. Uh, they don't take no for an answer. Um, also, they have, they have their mission, you see. They've got, they've got their mission, they've got their orders, and uh, yeah, so they, they're like, nope, nope, we're, no, we're going to come down anyway. And the response is, well, I can't be held responsible for anything that happens to, uh, down on the surface of this planet.
0: <laughs> Which is always something you want to hear when you're going to a new planet. Well, I can't be held responsible for whatever gruesome things uh, occur if you choose to ignore my advice it's basically what he says and it's uh, it's a guy with a really amazingly good speaking voice it's Walter Pigeon, who mm-hmm. was in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and a bunch of other stuff and uh, he just has one of the great great voices uh, of uh, of this of the Silver Age of, of film
1: right so uh, I was just flipping through the, the screenplay to see how they kind of introduce the planet of Altair 4. And, uh, they're, they're describing it as, uh, well, the oxygen content is, is 4.7% richer than Earth's standard, and the gravity is only 0.897 G's. So you might be feeling a little higher than usual during our stay here. Um, and that's a thing, right? That's, that's right. A, actually a pretty good description of, of what you might feel in a, in a higher oxygen environment and, and a little bit reduced gravity. It might feel a little, a little pep in your step. So the, uh, yeah, so the, the, the voice on the radio that's warning them off is, uh, of course, Dr. Morbius. Um, not to be confused with the Doctor Morbius of the DC uh, universe, um, which uh, I'm sure is, has uh, broken all all ticket sales records um, since it came out uh, a couple months ago. Um, different Doctor Morbius, definitely better, better Morbius. Um, so after uh, after he fails to to, to wave them off, um, our ship lands. Uh, they kind of set up a set up a little bit of a perimeter. They come out and the first. Thing that they meet upon landing on this planet is uh, driving up in a very interesting looking vehicle uh, is a robot. And this is uh, this is Robbie the robot and uh, again, this is this is kind of one of the first um, sort of anthropomorphic robots that we see in, in science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. Similar, you know, shortly after, after Gort. Um, is it Gort? From uh, the day of the Earth stood still? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but he he definitely seems a lot more constructed, uh, right? Yes. It looks like something you you put together out of the uh, the back of a, a Radio Shack catalog or something.
0: Absolutely, you could as an audience member think I could build a robot like that. Unlike Gort, was clearly the product of a sufficiently advanced civilization as to be indistinguishable of magic. Yeah, very interesting looking vehicle
1: um, that that the robot pulls up in. Um, there's a another interesting exchange. Um, trying to find it exactly in, in the in the trip but but basically the um the crew asks the robot oh yeah the the crew asks the robot uh are are you male or female and the robot answers well the, the question is totally without meaning uh which <laughs> which again was like that's great like of course yeah. like i'm a robot like why uh, and then and then of course like the rest of the movie they just misgender him uh, uh as, as i'm doing now uh probably robbie is a they call him, him. um Right, and Robbie doesn't doesn't care. He's a robot.
0: Um, yeah, Robbie's think, pretty chill about most things. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a real question at the beginning what Robbie's intent is and whether he should be menacing or not. Um, but Robbie, all in all, is is pretty chill. So Robbie takes
1: uh, our our commander, our uh, our doctor, and then uh, I think the second Will
0: Riker. Right? Yeah, yeah, the Will yeah, Riker yeah. standard. Yeah, you get you get the.
1: Uh, I mean, this this is again this this is the Star Trek away team basically mm-hmm. um and uh no no red shirt on this on this particular part of the ex- expedition uh red shirts all stay back with uh with the vehicle at this point right uh and we go and uh Robbie takes them to the house of Dr. Morbius and meet him in person mm-hmm.
0: do you think Dr. Orpheus from uh Venture Brothers is supposed to be in any way a takeoff of this character hmm. uh Doctor Orpheus looks somewhat like Doctor Morbius, um, and and he he doesn't really talk exactly like him. But I'm just sort of I don't know. I, I see some I see some parallels there. But uh, yeah, so he's got this house, and it's a it's an interesting construct, right? It's a very modern by 1956 standards, very modern looking house without being sort of spacey, uh, but uh, but like well thought out. Like this is a movie. It reminded me. It reminds me. Uh, You know, we've talked many times about how James Cameron builds, does world building, right? And when you have a door in a James Cameron film, you know, whether we see behind that door or not, you know that Cameron knows what's behind that door, right? I feel like this movie had a similar level of world building. Everything you saw in this movie had a purpose, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, whether, whether we went through every door... Yeah, it didn't matter but but things were thought through and there was a communication device thing that you could use to put shutters up on the on the windows, which of course like Chekhov's gun will come back and be useful to us later uh but it was just it was it was all very well thought out rather than just having you know like crap super glued to the wall to make it look spacey like many films in the 50s did yeah it's a i mean
1: it's a it it's a home that actually resembles some places that I've been, um, right? It, it could be, you know, a fairly well-off person's home in Boulder, Colorado, or Palm Springs, or, or something like that, you know, sort of a sunken living room, and, and the, you know, wide-open uh, patio doors that lead out into a sort of idyllic backyard kind of kind of thing, um, secret laboratory off to one side behind a locked door. Uh, it looks very, yeah, very, very homey, very lived in. And uh, so we learn more about... We we'll learn more about Robbie, uh, and, and an interesting thing that I noted about this this time was uh, when we learned that Morbius has built Robbie by himself. Uh, it initially kind of didn't make sense because uh, Morbius is introduced as a philologist, uh, right. so, so he's he, he he studies he studies words, right? Um, we'll, we'll learn later is why that's important. Um, mm-hmm. But so it, it initially, it's like, well, wait a minute, this this guy, you know, he's basically uh, you know. Liberal arts professor uh, how has he created this like amazingly powerful robot
0: sentient robot yes
1: yeah, yeah. and capable of, of building just about anything uh, as he demonstrates for us uh, we also learn Robbie's uh, that Robbie is not menacing uh, because he has some sort of interlock in him that, that doesn't allow him to uh, to harm people so the dr. Morbius borrows one of the phasers I guess we'll call it uh, from from the crew and asks him to shoot somebody and uh, Ruby very nearly overloads his own circuits sort of dealing with what is that the first law of robotics that we
0: that we yeah, meet here I believe it is the first right first is you can't harm people. second is you can't uh, what is it third is you have to obey humans
1: First uh, is yeah.
0: you can't harm second is the... uh, through through inaction
1: you can't allow a human to come to harm.
0: Yeah, that's the one that can cause all sorts of problems in oh, yeah. stories that attempt to obey. But aren't, aren't Asimov's Three Laws kind of nonsense? Like, I, I think you were, you mentioned this on the day of viewing. Like, somebody's basically shown through logic that you can't build a thing that would obey the three Asimov's Three rules, right? Yeah, and once you start getting down
1: to the implementation of it, it becomes... Uh, there, there are
0: so many
1: contradictions in corner cases. Um, which is, you know, what Asimov built like half of his writing career on.
0: Right. That's true. That's true. He did he did look at like a lo- he took a very lawyerly approach to his three laws of robotics. You know, people who could take advantage of it in a good lawyerly way. But I don't know. I've I've always felt it's a little bit of a cop out, but okay. But it, it makes it makes for a nice shorthand, right? Because then you don't have to you have very well behaved robots and uh you get over the you know, they, they decisively answer the question on whether Robbie is menacing or He is not,
1: right? Uh, and so, once we've once we've finished meeting Robbie and learning all about all that he can do, uh, we get into the the whole reason why his crew is there, uh, which is to figure out what the heck happened to the Velarathon, uh And quickly learn that they're all dead, uh, including um, including uh, Morbius's wife. Uh, and then we have a little bit of an exchange. You know, hey, you didn't say you're married. He's like, no, oh, we got we got married on the way out here. Uh, That's kind of a a sad sad note there.
0: Yep, yep. Uh, And and then we gradually find out more about the crew and what happened to them. Uh, And it it turns out that they were all, all but the wife, were killed uh, attempting to leave the planet. They decided that they were going to go home. He's a little vague as to why they were unhappy, uh, but they were going to go home. And uh, what some sort of mysterious force destroyed them. As he he stayed behind with his wife, and uh, everybody else was in the ship, and their ship got destroyed, which is why the ship is no no is not present. To him. Yeah.
1: Um, so once we've established that, and uh, that um, Marbius might be alone by himself, it turns out nope, no, he is not in fact alone. Uh, and we get to know his his daughter uh, Alta.
0: Isn't it Altera? Uh,
1: Altera, yeah. Um, yeah. She's described in the script as uh, about 19 years old uh, and dressed in a fl- filmy and revealing sort of playsuit uh, with incredible well, gouts go. of rubies about her neck and wrists. Uh, and all of a sudden, Morbius is, is, is very put out with her and said, why did you come out and join us? And she's like, well, because there's people and I want to meet.
0: Yeah, right. There's already... Right, they do a nice job sort of with the tension between Morbius and his daughter. She is not... Uh, she is not just the perfect uh, obedient child to her to her father yeah he had specifically told her not to join them and she did anyhow because yeah. she hasn't seen any people right right ever
1: yeah and, and so I was, I was trying to come up with a a, a take on on how she's presented here uh, and I think she's sort of in my mind maybe maybe kind of is on the line between sort of the like um overly overly naive, sort of, you know, object of desire, um, while still being, um, right, she's a, she's her own person, uh, right? Mm-hmm. You, you see her making decisions and, and, um, that, are, that are all sort of, like, quite rational and, and, um, sort of stand on their own. Uh, you know, a person in that situation might, you know,
0: it's totally reasonable that they might do something like that. Uh, I don't know, how did, how did,
1: how did you think that she was presented?
0: Uh, I mean, I I thought that she reminded me of there was a character in one of the original Star Trek episodes where there was a guy that uh had lived for thousands of years. He was born on Earth, but he was immortal, uh, basically like a Highlander type. Uh, and he had been like Beethoven and he had been all these famous, brilliant people through history. But he had built a robot girl and uh, she, uh Altera, reminded me of that character um quite a bit. Yeah, a combination of capable but zero experience with other humans, um, but but nicely nicely done. I mean, a character that would not have been uh, out of place in a movie thirty years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so immediately uh, uh,
1: between so again, the the doc sort of is the doctor, and he stands sort of aloof from this whole activity. Um, but between the, uh, the our, our commander and his and his second in command, they. they Immediately switch into uh, horn dog mode, uh, and they're like go
0: girl. Well, I thought Papard actually. I'm uh, oh, sorry, Leslie Liz- uh, Nielsen. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, Sorry, I-, I thought that Leslie Nielsen actually kept his cool. Right, yeah. it was yeah. the Will Riker stand-in that immediately was like, "Hey, why don't you go uh, show me around this place, and uh, we can, uh, you know, I'll get the tour and everything." Yeah, Lieutenant uh, Lieutenant Farman, uh, the guy's
1: name, and and yeah,
0: he, he's not he's not hiding anything. Uh, he's not subtle. Way. There's no. there's nothing no. subtle about his uh, except to poor Altera, who's never uh, dealt with a you know an, with an an adult male before, other than her father. Yeah, so she doesn't she doesn't kind of realize uh, what he's doing, but she's also not. I mean, like it's a smart movie. They um you know she's clearly she uh clearly likes his attention right so that part of it is is not bad you know what movie it reminded me of in terms of people interactions also from the 50s is uh uh, the thing the original version of the thing Mm. and that movie i think is even more uh modern in its characters there's a recurring uh, theme in the thing where uh, the woman who is the secretary for the main guy at the base keeps saying, uh, "Does anybody need any coffee?" And they all they keep saying no, but you can come in anyhow. And uh, so there's a there's just a you know, it's nice when you see screenwriting um, that has you know characters talking to each other in ways they might actually talk to each other. And I, I thought this movie was was pretty good, except of course for the in- incredibly aggressive behavior of of basically every guy except for the captain and the doc. In the presence of Altera.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so let's see. So we we uh, we do get to meet. Uh, so certainly after we meet Altera, uh, she takes us out into the backyard, um, and somewhat improbably, she has a bunch of like birds and deer, and uh, eventually we meet like a tiger, right. um, just you know, there on on this planet, uh, and she has some sort of control over them. Right
0: yeah she it's actually like the uh the character from enchanted right where she's got her little woodland friends that are around except one of the woodland friends includes a giant uh tiger right and they and they sort of come at her bidding yeah um and the you know the crewmen are sort of wondering what the heck is going on and
1: and and morbius doesn't really really explain it very well i don't think it's like oh yeah it's you know just a thing that happens because she's a innocent young woman, and that's
0: just what happens. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, the first half of this movie has, it does that thing where characters could very clearly explain what's going on and save everyone a lot of time and enough and don't, right? Morbius could be like, okay, listen, here's, um, you know, here's here's what this whole deal is about, um, and you just, you, you take some time to unfurl it, because it's not all that complicated of a story. You know, if you had characters... Just immediately spilling their guts about everything—it'd be about a forty-five minute. That would be. So let's see. So we've established uh, we've
1: established who's left on this planet and the, the
0: rather interesting
1: conditions under which they live. Uh, the the crew again uh, the the commander tries to convince them to come back to Earth with them, and he's like, "No, we're good. We're we're perfectly fine here." Uh, and so next, they have to sort of figure out what their what their next step is. They need a radio back to Earth, um, which sounds a lot more complicated than it probably ought to be. Uh, to well, start-
0: If I mean, if your radio is going to be a faster than light uh, system, then maybe it <laughs> isn't that simple, right? I mean, they go to great lengths to, to imply that the f- faster than light drive has some complexity to it. It, it seems reasonable that the uh, FTL uh, comm system would also take some time. Yeah. The captain basically tells Morbius, Morpheus that, uh, you know he needs to get instructions from higher ups. He's either going to take these people home with him, uh, back to Earth, or he needs to get different instructions from his boss. So it's going to take them some time. And Morbius doesn't want them. He just wants them gone. He's like, you should just, you should just go. He kind of reiterates his, his thing about that. He's like, well, we're not going until we fix this radio or until we get this radio set up. Yeah, and you
1: get, you get the sense that maybe there was an option at some point in there for, for the commander to say, ah. Yeah, we'll just like you. You were fine. We'll leave you here as you asked, and we'll just tell you know tell Earth Command that we didn't find any survivors of the of the Bellerophon. Um, and and maybe that was an option that, that he considered and decided uh, not to, just uh, because of a certain young woman living on this planet, uh, or or maybe not, or maybe that was not even considered because of his training
0: i think he's just considered a straight shooter he's just following the rules everything about this movie he is a very straight shooter um about stuff he's he's very uh much like the captains of the federation in that mm-hmm. regard you know i he's not he's not a horn dog, right the rela- the thing one of the things i actually like is that he doesn't uh put the moves on altera right away um and and he and altera start sparring Verbally, before there's any, uh, uh, any, before he makes any kind of a move. I wouldn't say he makes a move. I would say he and Altera eventually discover, uh, some attraction to each other. Um, but it, it kind of puts him at odds with the men who work for him and, and shows that this, the relationship between the captain and his crew in this is more overtly military than it would be in a Star Trek show. Right? Yeah. And he is definitely the captain, and is held to a different standard than his men. But I just took the thing about uh, needing to go get instruction as he wouldn't—he wouldn't disobey his orders. He would go get different. Yeah, and so he's not the, a jerk. He's not like we're going to frog march you guys onto the ship, and that's that. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's a,
1: a rational. And another, yes, yeah, fairly rational character. Um, and and yeah, I think they're you know once once he and Altera, um, I think their relationship is. Um, yeah, again, very much like a 50s and 60s, kind of a, like a meat cute kind of a thing um, with that like, that verbal sparring. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, I guess we're going to get together now.
0: Uh, so moving along, we've got, uh, we're, we're building...
1: building I, I just want to point out
0: that, that Niel- Leslie Nielsen is 30 at this point. Wow. And, and, and even by even by the lightest of standards, which is the half plus seven rule... Like, he shouldn't be macking at all on a 19-year-old, or a 17-year-old, or whatever. Whatever she is. She's not... Half plus seven would be 22 there. But, sorry. no. Well, let's see. Uh, So, yeah.
1: So we start uh, um, start building this communication device uh, with a bunch of help from Robbie the Robot. And uh, then we have our our first sort of comedic interlude with the cook, um, who basically takes Robbie the Robot aside and says, hey, uh, I heard you could make stuff. Uh, can can you, can you make me some bourbon? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's this very, like, stereotypical, uh, funny drunk kind of, Mm -hmm. kind of moment. Um, and, uh, I I was sort of reading through some of the reviews, uh, from when this movie came out, and and a lot of the reviews really, um, really focused on the comedic side of of the film. Um, you know, they called it um, it's uh, you know a, a spoof uh, in some places.
0: Uh, wow, it is not. Yeah. I mean, there are crazy, crazy humor. moments. Wow, yeah, yeah. I would not call this a, this film a comedy. It no, is, it is no. traditional hard sci-fi. Well, not hard sci-fi, but traditional sci-fi. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll 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 come back to the cook
1: uh, and his <laughs> request of of Robbie for some uh, genuine Kansas Ooch. City bourbon later. Um, but, uh, yeah, the cook, the cook is, is an interesting character too, right? You know, again, we see in, in so many other science fiction movies, uh, and, and, and TV shows, like, yeah, sometimes you just need to have a cook on board, uh, when you travel to other planets. Uh, we don't actually get to see any value that he brings other than, than the, uh, comedic effect. Right. Um But, but yeah, you assume that, like, it's good to have somebody who can, you know, fry up some hash browns, uh, to, to fill your bellies before you go to, you know, soup- faster than light speed or something.
0: Although if I only have a crew of 18, I'm not sure if I have a full-time cook, but whatever. Yeah, and you figure if you can travel
1: faster than light, maybe you've also got replicator technology, um, but... Uh, maybe. Or, or all of your food is in pill form or something, but right. apparently not. And apparently, you know, bourbon is still a thing. Well, I hope
0: yeah. bourbon will always be a thing, but...
1: Yeah. Uh, so then we have, uh, I think, after shortly after that... Um, a, a an incredibly uncomfortable scene where our uh the the second in command uh basically starts trying to talk uh, Al- Altera into some uh into some, some kissing fun like hey this yes. is this is kissing this is this is what what humans do um and uh boy is that an uncomfortable scene to watch
0: yeah it that 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 has not aged well i mean it is you know in the end i think it's really designed um artistically to uh, contrast that behavior with the behavior of the captain, and show maybe why. Uh, I think it has. Two, I think it has two effects. Um, one is to contrast with the captain, and then as the plot unfurls um, later on, you can look back at that scene and you can say, "Huh." Once we know what we know about what's going on on the planet, and once we know what happens to um, not William Riker. Um, you could maybe draw some lines between it right mm. like he, like you could argue that um the plan you know uh the forces involved kind of decided he had it coming right yeah I, 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 I really noticed as the as as the movie unfurled and we realize what the power is that's running the planet um and why it's doing what it's doing you're like I bet you he's gonna die and sure enough he sure did
1: yes um yeah
0: and this this particular scene
1: ends with uh, with the commander uh, coming back in and uh, you know breaking them up, and then of course he's mad uh, he's mad at Altara um, because of course he is um, right. for you know
0: because she used her feminine wiles that yeah.
1: she didn't know she had yeah. I don't know yeah and that's
0: this uh, she was distracting so- his crew in the time honored fashion of captains who don't want their crews distract you know that it's right. <laughs> you you would think that a professional captain would be like look here's the policy young man we don't accost uh the people we're trying to save but yeah it's not played quite that way and then and then of course
1: later he he, uh berates her for for dressing like a floozy um
0: yeah
1: you know could you could you put on some more clothes um yeah yeah um anyway moving on um so let's see here so I think our 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 next real big turn here is um, when we yeah when we're we're introduced to some kind of invisible creature. Um, yes,
0: like, the movie the the tone the the tone of the movie takes a turn.
1: Yeah, and it, and it's uh, again I don't know if this if this was maybe the first time this particular for uh, sort of cinematic setup was used, but it, it must have been one of the first of basically. This camera's eye view uh, of an invisible creature making its way uh, onto the ship uh, and and kind of uh, sneaking around. Uh, you don't you don't see you, you don't see the creature in at all right. in this scene. Uh, it's you see its ominous.
0: footprints, mm-hmm. and you see it as it's going up the staircase. It bends the stairs as it goes up the staircase, so it's clearly big and heavy. Yeah, uh,
1: very yeah, very very creepy. Kind of, uh, kind of introduction to like something, something scary is, is happening here.
0: Um, and is that I... the point where a crew member gets killed? Um, let's see. But, here. Because equipment, no. get, equipment gets equipment gets equipment, wrecked. Yes.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, right. Basically, uh, commander. The commander gets back to the ship and says, uh, "Yeah, on the on the overnight watch, somebody came into the ship." Uh, the the hatch that was supposed to be locked was opened and then closed again uh, and then some stuff was broken and uh, there were some people who were on on duty and you didn't see anything uh, and he's basically furious at his men for for missing something right and they uh, and they get a, they get chewed out yeah yeah and so the broken stuff I think is is part of the part of the radio system that they were building right. to communicate back to Earth um, and uh, we get a nice Scotty moment, uh, when, um, his name Quinn, uh, Chief Quinn is asked, you know, how long is it going to take to fix this? And he's like, well, you know, if I don't stop for breakfast, I'll be, you know, um, and, uh, yeah, it's a very Scotty type moment.
0: Totally Scotty. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, I love Chief Roddenberry, but he mined a lot of the early form of Star Trek. From this movie, I think so much more than any other science fiction film that came before the show.
1: So after after having this sort of mysterious break-in, um, of course the only person that they can go and, and interrogate is uh, is Morbius. And they run kind of run back to, to his place, uh, start to uh, look for him. Morbius is uh, away in his study. Uh, Robbie tells them, "Nope, can't come in. He's doing stuff." Um, and this is where uh, our our intrepid commander happens happens across uh, Altara just kind of swimming in the nude as one does yeah uh, right again you know as as the sort of you know, innocence like why wouldn't she um, hey. i mean like like honestly why wouldn't
0: she right she's right. it's her, and her dad on yeah. this planet so that's fine
1: yeah and then of course uh yeah, the commander is completely flustered and also like mad at her for not wearing a bathing suit and hat and so on. Um,
0: but he's he's mad, but not mad, mad. Yeah, like yeah. they're starting to his his heart is starting to thaw a little bit towards Halt. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So they have a little bit more of a kind of a, a meat
1: cute. Um. And the the tiger comes back in uh, at the end of the scene. And whereas previously she was able to. You know, hang out with the tiger, and he kind of came over and, and um, basically was like a like a kitty cat. Uh, the the tiger basically leaps on them, uh, and and the commander has to shoot the tiger and, and uh, vaporize it. Right, and she's like moderately annoyed, and then and then they, they make out a bunch.
0: But but like she's like that never happened before. Like what's yeah. going on with the yeah. with the tiger? I don't know what's going on. So she's she is not like everything's fine. Like her dad's like, you guys need to just leave. But she pretty quickly starts to realize that like things are weird and not great. So, and, let's so say she the, doesn't she let uh, the captain go into the study. Or the yeah,
1: yeah, basically. Um, like, all right, okay, now they're gonna go go into the study. Um, they run across a uh, piece of paper on on Morbius's desk. Morbius isn't there. Uh, but, and like, oh, this is like some sort of alien writing. What's going on here? And then Morbius shows up at this point, uh, comes in from a from a tunnel behind them, and uh, this it's is where we get pretty
0: yeah. indignant that they went into yeah. his office.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then at this point, they're basically like, you sort of see Morbius get get the uh, get an opportunity to show off, uh, to show off what he knows. And This is where we get all the backstory of the planet. Right.
0: So, so he does a couple of things, right? First off, he shows them a device that measures intellectual capability, right? As measured by the ability, it measures your intelligence and it uses your brain power to lift a thing, right? So it's like a visual representation of intelligence, right? Yeah, it's uh, um, like a, one of
1: those uh, carnival games where you like, at CO, CO hard, you can hit something with a mallet, um, only, only at your brain.
0: Right. Although I think of it more like those devices that you blow into after you have surgery, and it's to strengthen your lung power, and, mm-hmm. you, and you blow a little thing up inside the tube. Yeah. But anyhow, so he demonstrates that uh, he's got more brain power than the captain. And then he explains that uh, he augmented his brain power, right? That he uh, used... This, this planet used to belong to uh, a race called the Krell, and uh, they were... Uh, unbelievably technologically advanced, far more advanced than humans, and then uh, they suffered some sort of cataclysm, and uh, now they're all gone. But remnants of their technology are, are around, and this device uh, he used—he used their technology to build Robbie, and he also uh, has augmented his intelligence using one of the devices, and now he can lift the doohickey further than anybody else can, and he's smarter than
1: yes. Yes. Uh and he he, th- he throws out his IQ uh at some point in that conversation, as as philology professors probably do. Uh
0: right. Back when Mensa wasn't a uh like uh uh a caustic, uh containment ground for neckbeards.
1: Yeah. Um and uh interestingly as as he kind of describes what the, the Krell were all about, he, he does drop the idea that uh they, they had come to Earth at one point and brought back some specimens, and that kind of explains the the tiger and the deer and, and whatever else. Um, which sure, why not?
0: Sure, makes as much sense as anything else as to yeah. why there would be tigers. Yeah. So we get, I mean, this the the
1: tour that we get um, of of this sort of underground city, basically the remnants of, of the of the Krell city, is, is pretty fantastic. Uh, I mean, it starts off a little chintzy. Uh, the first couple of, of rooms that we go into, um, you know, feels very sci-fi sci-fi movie set, but It's pretty cool once we get a little farther into the planet.
0: Yeah, I mean, they have this killer scene where he's standing at the edge of this giant uh, cube of space. I think they call it one of the great machines. There's a series of great machines on the planet. And uh, they have... It's just gargantuan. It actually reminds me of Dune a little bit in the visual representation of large spaces. You know, Everything in this space is vast. And they actually have uh, a machine that you don't know why it's doing it, but it's moving vertically. As they're standing on a platform, you can see a big pill-like looking device moving vertically, and they don't explain it, and they don't have to, and it's mm-hmm. all just part of, you know, there's this incredibly complicated machine uh, that they're that they're just, you know, just on the on the edges of don't understand really in any way, shape, or form. But it's it's vastness it really hadn't been portrayed like that, I think, in a movie. Previously, and the special effects were just gorgeous. It was actually up for best special effects, and it lost to Ten Commandments. And I'm like, okay, Ten Commandments has some good special effects. I will give you, but um, this movie just is such a reset button for special effects for film. And one of the things about it is, you know, there's um, we mentioned there's a disintegrator scene. And uh, later, there'll be some scenes where you can see some things illuminated um, just sort of by their outline. They actually borrowed a uh, senior Disney animator. Uh, this, wasn't, this film wasn't in any way produced by Disney, but one of their senior animators came over and worked on the film. And so uh, you have this combination of practical special effects and uh, cell-based animation. Uh, that that works really really well. They use it very sparingly. They don't they don't use it for very much. So extremely well done. Yeah. Um, so let's see. So that was
1: our that was our introduction to the giant giant machine that runs the planets. Um, there there is a, a bit of a discussion between the commander and, and Morbius as they're as they're kind of staring down at this twenty mile wide cube computer thing. Um, and and Morbius basically says you know every once in a while it just turns on all by itself and I don't know why. And and the commander's like that's kind of creepy. Like why? Like what is it doing? And, and Morbius like I have no idea. I've, I've been trying to figure this out for twenty years. Oh, they
0: also have, by the way, a beautiful visual representation of what's going on inside the giant cube. They have a series of panels, and each panel represents an order of magnitude more power. So you start in the first panel and it's one unit of whatever power. The next is 10 and the next is 100 and the next is 1,000 and 10,000. And there's like 15 of these or 16 or 20. or I don't know exactly how many. But so something, uh, let's say 16. So like 16, 16 orders of magnitude of power. Um, that So, you know, you'll see the thing blurble up on the first few panels, you know, and it's doing, you know, 10 or 100 units of whatever power. But later on in the movie, it becomes really important and it's a beautiful it's a beautiful plot uh shorthand for what's going on inside that giant 20 by 20 by 20 cube because you can't you're not going to show anything different going on inside there but this panel allows you and it follows on to the thing that you just said about the activity that you don't really know what's going on you know you have this visual representation that something's going on inside that cube but you have no idea what it is
1: so meanwhile, back at the ship, uh, they've set up a, actually set up a perimeter. Uh, that's like electrified electric fence kind of a deal. Um, uh, we have another interlude with a Drunk Cook as he goes out and meets Robbie the robot and delivered a an rather unhealthy quantity of um, like 60, 60 gallons of of, uh, of bourbon. Uh, hopefully, he doesn't in,
0: in pint oh, bottles.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a
0: thousand <laughs> pints of. Yeah. Uh... Old, old Kentucky bourbon, or whatever it is. Yeah,
1: um, and uh, that that scene though leads into the the first the first view of um, this creature trying to break through the um, trying to break through the electric fence. Um, it kind of shorts shorts a little bit. Um, everyone's like, "What's going on?" Um, and then it seems to seems to to disappear, um, leaving some footprints behind. Um, so let's see here. So we've got. Uh, some more discussion follows with, uh, between Morbius and and the doc and, and, uh, the commander about, you know, what's going on and what's, what, what, uh, what's been powering this planet. Um, but then this, uh, this attempted break-in through the electric fence gets everybody's attention. Uh, they find the, um, the footprint, and the doc makes a, a plaster cast of it, which is amazingly detailed, <laughs> um, uh-huh. as he, as he unwraps it, uh, with a giant, uh, giant toenail and uh, a lot more detail than maybe one would expect to get out of it. Right, right.
0: Like print. feathers, they can they can tell it has feathers. You know, let's, I don't think you get that from a from a uh, plaster cast, but whatever.
1: That's yeah, fine. yeah. Some sort of bipedal uh, impossible tree sloth or, or something. Yeah,
0: hard. I mean, the thing that's nice about it is you know the they keep the mystery because the the. The foot claw thing is scary as hell. Like, whatever creature has a foot like this, you don't want to meet it, right? And the fact that it's invisible and traipsing around their camp uh, is really scary. And so they do a nice job; it really maintains the sense of what the heck is going on here. Um, yeah, and then uh,
1: the first the first death occurs right around this this time, right? It's uh, the chief, um, and no one's really sure what happened. How the how the chief is killed? Um, and obviously, there's there's a lot going on that they're trying to sort out. Um, and at this point, um, Morbius shows up and he's like, "All right, this is how it begins. Like I warned you, this is how it's this is how it starts." Um,
0: because this is basically the the Bellerophon crew had a similar escalating set of uh, circumstances that they experienced, right? Things got worse and worse and worse, and then people started dying, and that's when they decided to leave, and that's when they all got killed. So that's what that's what Morpheus.
1: Morpheus. Um, so after another warning by Morpheus, the creature comes back that night, um, and this time it is, is basically breaking through uh, the fence, uh, and and now we get some full on Richard action. Uh, you, get, you get the guys with their uh, beam weapons that seem to work perfectly fine from, like, 50, 100 yards away, um, but they have to run in and get closer to it,
0: get, just to get that shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are not, yeah, these guys, yeah, it's unfortunate. Right, maybe if we stand closer, our laser will work better. Uh, right, yeah, and, and of course, after one or two of them
1: get get killed by an invisible monster, they suddenly realize they're being attacked by a monster that is, in fact, invisible.
0: Right, because as they're shooting at it, you can see in the pattern of the impacts of the of the blaster beams, you see the outline of a creature. Right, the the blaster splatter, if you will, um, forms the outline of a creature, including a set of, to me, very scary eyes. Mm-hmm. Like I think Thank if you. I had been in a movie theater in nineteen. 19- Fifty-six. I would have been scared out of my pants by that animation sequence because that creature looks just demonic. It's got—it's clearly got two eyes. It's clearly huge and monstrous and trying to break through and get them. And uh, yeah, bravo, just a great scene. And this is also where the Will Riker character gets killed. Mm-hmm. He's one of the—he's one of the—he's one of the, one of the, one of the a- eager, eager as he is in every single way, you know. You've got the uh, the old bull and the young bull, and uh, he young bulls his way to oblivion, and uh, that's that for him. But he was never a credible. And from a plot standpoint, uh, they didn't. Thankfully, they didn't try to set up any kind of romantic uh, competition. It wasn't going to be that one of these two guys was going to win Altera as a prize. You know, she she was perfectly fine to let uh, fake Will Riker kiss her once. Um, but she clearly had a lot more fun verbally sparring with the captain. And, uh, it was nice that they didn't try to turn it into a contest where she was the prize.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, a uh, yeah, it is more of the, yeah, that sort of 1960s kind of meat cute kind of thing. Um, rather than, yeah, who's the, who's the best man here? Or maybe who's the lucky fellow
0: that's going to yeah. get
1: the girl? Yeah. Um, yeah. There was one, uh, I tried to look up, um, there was one mention as they're as they're blasting this thing with their blasters of the amount of power that they're pouring into it, um, and, uh, I think they mentioned that they're, they, uh, uh, yeah, they put three billion electron volts, uh, in, into this creature, and it somehow survived, um, standing there in the neutron beams, uh, absorbing it like it ain't no thing. Um, I, try, I tried to look up what, what sort of three billion electron volts, uh, is equivalent to, um, Closest I could find is um, somewhere around 125 billion electron volts is the the, the mass of the Higgs boson. Um, so, like, we're we're talking a lot of energy. Like, this is this is large hadron collider type uh, amount of energy that they're able to put out. These beam yeah, and
0: and and some atomic particles would be measured in electron volts, right? They wouldn't be measured in watts the way electricity would be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, kudos. Like, do we know who did the? Did they have scientific consultants? For films in nineteen fifty-six? Huh. I don't know.
1: Uh, good question. I don't. I wasn't able to find anything uh, about the the writing of the um, the story consultants. Um, so, uh, so they try and fight this creature. Um, little success. Uh, it it kills some redshirts uh, as well as our um, our Riker. And uh, at this point, they gotta they gotta go back to Morbius. They gotta figure out what the heck is going on. That um, they're, they're I, I think the commander is suspicious that Morbius knows something. Uh, right. So they've got a- More
0: than he's saying. Yeah.
1: Um, they have a uh, they have a confrontation with Robbie the robots when they go to to try and, and get to Morbius. Um, right. Robbie bars the door basically, uh, and uh, uh, Altara has to basically override uh, mm-hmm. Robbie's commands to let them in. Um, just kind of she's taking taking ownership of the situation there. Um
0: let let me also point out that in that previous scene when the giant creature is trying to attack the ship meanwhile back at the house Altera has a nightmare and she screams and her dad wakes up and the monster disappears
1: Ah uh, yes yes
0: w- which is which is I think the the uh <laughs> The the first moment where we move from like what the hell is going on to oh, mm-hmm. so after uh, after Altera lets lets them in the house, um, the, the
1: commander and and she have have a bit of a moment where she's like you need to take me back to Earth, um, and and I love you and um, so on and so forth and then they um, they have a bit of a moment.
0: Yeah, there. she doesn't she doesn't uh, she doesn't understand the Earth concept of going slow. Yeah, she's in yeah. love. She's got and, yeah.
1: Uh, she has no no frame of reference. Um, and uh, let's see here. So then then we uh, we get we get Morbius out again, um, and between uh, between the Doctor and and Morbius, um, they kind of start to get to some conclusions. And then the monster shows up again uh, and breaks into the house basically. Well, um,
0: before that though, there's a scene before that, which is the Doc tries to use the intelligence enhancer on himself mm-hmm. um, he decides that he's going to try to figure out what's going on and uh, so they go in and he's already basically dying he's taken this thing it's not gonna work for whatever reason but he talks about he says something about you know they forgot they forgot about monsters from the in and then and then the plot really picks up.
1: Mm-hmm. Morbius
0: shows up. And they're trying to figure out what's going on, and then uh, yeah, then Ro- then Robbie says something is approaching, right? Yeah, he, does, he doesn't yeah. even know what it is, but it's something
1: bad. Yeah, and so so we get we get the uh, you know the commander is trying to to get Morbius to, to give up the goods on you know what is what's the id what, what are you talking about? Um, and
0: I was he- a little surprised that the captain of a spacecraft who seems to be well educated generally speaking is like what is this it thing that uh the doctor was talking about I, I sort of feel like people don't most people kind of have a at least a basic understanding of like id, ego and superego? ego uh, i mean these days sure um yeah. maybe maybe one one
1: assumes that uh um is Freud, Freud isn't studied anymore in the year uh whatever this is twenty two hundred, twenty
0: five. yeah right okay maybe and of course the audience needs to get reminded about what the Id. right
1: yeah um but uh, but yeah, I think right in the in the fifties, I, I I would assume that the audience might be a little bit more familiar, uh, but maybe not. Um, so but yeah, Morbius doesn't have anything of it. He's more just trying to keep his daughter from leaving the planets right. uh, and and keep control of the situation. Uh, and then ultimately, the the commander the commander gets it. He's like, oh wait, I get it. The id the id. Okay. Um, and uh, so so this is kind of the the source of the problem, uh, which is that the these Ultra powerful beings, uh, the, the Krell, uh, had managed to, to basically work their way out of, of every, every problem, um, except for their own ids. And they, they had to sort of like offload their ids into, into this device that runs the planet, uh, and it just comes, uh, Turns out that wasn't a good idea because it, it comes to life and kills people.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I got it I, I maybe I maybe I heard it a little differently. I heard it as they were ready they had they had shaken off all the physical uh their physical forms except for their mental selves. And so when they when they gave themselves ultimate power, uh they forgot about the fact that they were also giving power um to the id. And so um You know, their whole, their whole intellects were being supercharged, basically. And it's like if you had, I mean, in some senses, it's the, uh, Dark Phoenix issue, right? From Marvel Comics, where if you give a telepath infinite power, some of the things that comes out of the human, some of the things that come out of the human brain are not great, right? And, uh, so, uh, in addition to the things that you think about at a conscious level, um, your brain is active at the subconscious level, right? We dream, right? Just even even just to take our dreams, right? Imagine a machine that could turn our dreams to life uh, and what that would mean, right? So, uh, so there's this, uh, you know, at a level, um, the doctor, you know, Mor- Morbius is uh, jealous of, you know, the fact that uh, the commander is uh, falling in love with his daughter, you know, Freud would say, uh you know that there's an inherent jealousy of that as the, f- the father lets go of the daughter um and you know they're going to take his daughter away from him and he's going to lose you know authority and all that kind of stuff and it's manifesting from his id as a giant monster right yeah it, it
1: can't can't come from the krell anymore right because there aren't any krell left uh right. so who's you, who's who's the only other guy plugging himself into? this uh that million-year-old computer uh, on a regular basis. Uh, well, it's Morbius.
0: Mm-hmm. And and Morbius has a really hard time accepting this, and all the while, so they first put up the shutters on the outside doors, and those immediately start bending in under the under the influence of the of the monster, and so then they go inside the Krell command room behind a giant blast door, like the blast the mother of all blast doors, and then the, then the monster starts heating up that. And you have this long scene where the door is getting progressively hotter and hotter. And it's really well done because they're arguing with Morbius uh, about this whole thing. And he's denying it. Um, but they've got the evidence right in front of them. And the door is getting hotter and hotter. And it starts off just like a dull yellow, like just a slightly off-color yellow. And then gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And all the while, these giant panels that measure the... Output of the great machine. More and more of them are lighting up because the machine is driving more and more power to uh, to make this to give the monster the power that it needs to uh, break into the room. And it's got it's just a wonderful uh, nightmare effect.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, I like how you described just the way that the the dials and gauges are are used there, um, right? With each one being an order of magnitude more power. Um, So yeah, by the time you get to like the tenth or twentieth uh, gauge um, going going to full power. It's like that's that's an immense immense amount of energy, um, and so yeah, of course, of course, this thing is able to to melt its way through a, a two foot thick door or whatever it is.
0: So so what what happens next? Uh, I'm reading the Wikipedia uh, entry, and it says here's what it says: Morbius accepts the truth, confronts and disowns his other self. And the id monster vanishes, leaving Morbius fatally injured. Like, is that, I, I feel like that is, uh, that is one way to say it. I'm not sure if it was that clear. It's just like everything reaches a crescendo and Morbius finally accepts that this is all created by him. And it's like the shock of it kills him, right? Like the acceptance of what's going on, the, the opening oneself up to the truth. Somehow, spiritually, psychologically, whatever you want to call it, it, it just seems sort of magic-y and not really clear why he why it kills him. And I, it's one of the few times in the movie where there's a plot element where I'm like, uh, maybe they just did that because they wanted him to be dead, right? Like it, it's not obvious to me why he had to die at that point. Although it's also clear that once he's dead, why why the monster went away. But I mean it's like it would have been a, a more clear way would have been if he had killed himself, right? If he had said the only way to the only way to get rid of this thing is for me to uh not be alive anymore and like jump off the railing of the ten or so the twenty mile tall thing or whatever, right? Yeah. But just to sort of die of the shock of it is a very, very Victorian era sort of plot element, I felt like.
1: Right. And 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 the way I kind of remember it was I mean he's, he's killed by his own monster. Uh right destroyed by his own id um and the way uh the at least the way it's represented in the, in the script is that the monster actually uh just like straight up attacks him um and that's but but again right it's the monster is him uh and, but and but,
0: but that's right. not the scene we see yeah. right that would yeah. have been a fun scene yeah if the monster had grabbed him and torn him limb from limb or done whatever right Thrown yeah. him at the wall or whatever and then it's destroyed Right, because then it's him destroying himself accidentally. I mean, either either destroying himself intentionally would have been a great scene, or the monster destroying him and inadvertently destroying itself destroying itself would have been a great scene. But to just sort of like die of the vapors, um, I thought was a was a little bit of a cop out. Yeah, or
1: um, I don't know what would what would Freud say? He if He destroyed if you destroy the id. Um, does the <laughs> does the professor does the professor die without an id?
0: I don't know. Yeah, but how does he even destroy it? It's not like right. he says, you know, I cast you out or I disown you or I don't know. I don't know. I just yeah. don't, I don't understand what the mechanism was that left him dead. But certainly once he's dead, then like everything very quickly, you know, the machine calms down and the door stops uh, melting. The, mel- the door melting effects were really beautiful and scary. Mm-hmm. Throughout all of this, they were using a theremin, right? Was that the musical uh, device or was it just electronic music? Might have just been. Uh, yeah, it was electronic music. Um, I ran out of time to
1: look it up, um, but it was basically uh,
0: no, it's not a
1: theremin. Um, this was basically the first real like electronic uh, film score. Um, right. By, I mean, somebody got
0: some resistors and capacitors and a speaker together, and yeah. you know, did some stuff.
1: Um, yeah, done by uh, Bebe and Louis Baron. Uh, and pioneers in the field of electronic music. Um, credited with writing the first electronic music for magnetic tape composed in the States. Nice! Um, yeah, right. pretty cool. But yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. Circuit bending. Just circuit bending. Okay. Put together some, some circuits and modulators and resistors and whatnot and, and uh, yeah, put it on tape. And, and to, to great effect. Right? I mean, the, the, is appropriately creepy and, like, sets that sci-fi tone.
0: Wow. The Musicians' Union forced MGM to title the Forbidden Planet score Electronic Tonalities, Not Music. And seeing the handwriting on the wall used that excuse to deny uh, Bebe and Lewis membership in the 1950s. The union's primary concern was losing jobs to performers rather than the medium itself. As a result, the Barons never scored another film for Hollywood. Hey, thanks Musicians' Union. Nice job. And that's maybe why we didn't get more great electronic music for another thirty years, right? Well, not thirty years, uh, twenty five years. So we had Vangelis and and uh, oh Blade Runner and and uh, oh uh, Wendy Kathy Carlos, Paul, right? And, 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 and well, yeah, yeah. So late late seventies. Yeah. So they 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 put a stopper in it for twenty years. Um, good job. Good job. Well done, MGM. Um,
1: cool. So, so, um, so
0: then we're so then we're into the denouement, right?
1: Yeah. And it's a pretty quick, pretty quick wrap up, um, right, we're, made, we're,
0: made quicker, made quicker by the fact that as Morbius is dying, he tells the captain to do a certain sequence of things on uh, the desk, and uh, the captain does, and it turns out to be a self-destruct mechanism for the planet. Because Morbius had said early on there was a, a subplot about the captain wanting to bring this technology back to Earth, and Morbius was like, "Are you high?" Like there's no way we're ready for this technology at all, right. even a little bit. And the captain's like, "That's not up to you to decide." And in the end, Morbius gets his way. Right? He gets to yep. destroy all the technology, so that uh, except for uh, except for Robbie, right? Robbie, Robbie. Yeah, yeah. Robbie, so at least yeah. some some little bit of the Grell technology lives up.
1: Right. One one wonders that uh, you know, as soon as as soon as Robbie gets back to Earth, uh, I think. Uh, Someone among <laughs> yeah. the viewing party uh, mentioned, like, "Well, uh, is it going to be like when uh, somebody in Starfleet wanted to take apart Commander Data to figure out uh, how they could build more of him?"
0: Yeah, Robbie probably doesn't have a long and happy future in front of him as a uh, member of the whatever United Galactic Planetary whatever they were called. yeah <laughs> right.
1: Although his his ability to sort of to create almost anything. Um, at, at, replicator. At, on, replicator on request account, yeah basically. maybe yeah. maybe that's a saving grace
0: um so let us if hope you t- if you take me apart i'm not going to be able to do this anymore yeah but let's hope that that's how uh things ended up for and so that's it so the planet blows up and uh they go home yeah pretty much um and uh
1: and there they are um the commander gets the girl uh robot gets to leave the planets um and uh if cookie you, gets to keep his hooch. Cookie, oh, one assumes, yeah, that uh, uh, all of the all of the extra mass of, of that urban um, more than offsets the the dead bodies that they left behind on Altair IV, uh, and uh,
0: everybody lives happily ever after. If the, if the don't, right? Except for the idiots who who walked up to the uh, giant monster and the horn dog and Morbius. So, yep. All right uh so what do we think let's do our let's do our scoring as we do uh we do science we do fiction and we do film uh what do we think on a scale of zero to 100 percent of the science side of this film um gosh that's a tough one
1: um but uh i don't know i think i think uh everything was explained pretty pretty well in general Um, With the exception, maybe of the 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 tiger situation, Um, so yeah, for the for the time, I I, I'd give it. uh, I'll give it a sixty five.
0: Sixty five, okay. I I might even go a little bit higher than that. I mean, if you are going to have faster than light drive, and if you are going to have. Ansible, you know, faster than light communication. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Um, you know, they had real landing gear. Uh, the terminal deceleration system on the uh, spacecraft made sense. Um, so I'm going to. And by the way, that is a shout out. Uh, for anybody doesn't know, I recently changed jobs, and uh, Tim and I now work together again. Uh, the company that we were both at uh, back in the day, uh, Blue Origin, I work at again. So uh, Tim and I work on slightly different parts of the same suborbital vehicle, um, but, uh, or different, uh, I should say, different business missions on that vehicle. Um, But uh, so I'm I'm back doing that. So that's a lot of fun. So I'm going to say, so you gave it 65%. I'm going to give it 75% for a total score of 70%. Um, You know, it's not... it's not the Martian, right? Uh, but it's uh, the science. Uh, I think they do a, a great job, particularly for the nineteen fifties. Show me another nineteen fifties movie where the science is half as good. Uh, I don't think I don't think such a film exists. But yeah, yeah. Uh, h- how about the fiction? Ooh, okay, um,
1: fiction. I think um, I think it's a great story. Um, uh, you know, like we talked about at the top. It's it's the story is is good enough that it was basically taken by gene roddenberry to create you know the the basic structure of a star trek episode um whether you know whether he yeah, you know did that on purpose or or just sort of picked that up uh, along the way um it's it's fairly straightforward um with enough twists to kind of follow along um and uh yeah i think uh i'm gonna give it uh I'm gonna give
0: it an 80 percent All right. Well, uh, yes, it was a great story when Shakespeare wrote it. Uh, (laughs) And it's a great story now. Uh, So it is a uh, somewhat um, um, uh, modernized version of The Tempest um, by Shakespeare. It has a lot of – its bones get pulled from uh, The Tempest. And it's interesting because remember how I mentioned that the female character reminded me of an episode from Star Trek? Well, Requiem for Methuselah is the episode I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. And that is also drawn from The Tempest. And the young female character, Reyna, is basically the Altera character. So <laughs> so uh, when Altera reminded me of Reyna, uh, uh, we can all thank the, the bard for that. Uh, for so, so many things. Yeah. Yeah, for, yeah. Almost nothing is invented. It's just recycled and in various ways um so yeah i mean i think the fiction is great i think that uh i think 80 is a great number i can i can support 80 uh characters are well done there's some jarring uh 1950s isms uh i think the thing like i said is a better um you know f- as character interactions you know translate to our modern era both the original version of the thing and of course the 1980s version of the thing, which is, I'm sorry, it's just undebatable, the scariest film ever made, uh, are, uh, yeah, are, are maybe a little bit more uh, uh, translate better to a 21st century ear, But yeah, I just thought it was great. So 80% is fine. Uh, how about as a film? As a film, um, you know, again,
1: taking a little bit in in the context of the time, uh, but, but even, you know, it, a lot of a lot of the as we we're talking about the special effects stand the test of time. Um uh my eight eight year old may have disagreed at certain points. Um but uh but they don't know what they're what they're missing. Um um but yeah, especially as as someone who uh who grew up with a lot of like rotoscoped kind of special mm-hmm. effects, um, you know, the Ralph Bakshi kind of thing and, and whatever else, like that's this is like blows that stuff out of the water, um, and, and a lot of the you know, we talked about the scenes under the planet. We talked about you know some of the the other kind of like um, kind of big big scenes that they have, um, just really well done. Uh, and um, yeah, as a film, um, we talked about the music as well. Um, uh, yeah, fantastic. I'm gonna give it a, a 85. 85.
0: All right, I'm gonna give it a 90. Uh, I just think that nothing until 2001 came along, there's nothing that matched cinematically as a science fiction film. There's nothing that I've seen that came close to matching Forbidden Planet. And the fact that it took another 12 years or 13 years and it took Kubrick, right? Like it it took over a decade and it took, you know, the most methodical director possibly of the last hundred years. Uh, to make a better science fiction film in terms of the look and and whatnot, um, I think is is just uh, amazing. So, I, so I, I would give it a ninety, so an a- aggregate score of eighty-eight. Um, I do think I, I do think your eight-year-old is onto something. I think they, uh, you know, it, it is hard. We are, you know, as transformative as, as this movie was, uh, the original Alien and Aliens transforms science fiction that much further because it changed the pacing of what we would come to expect in a film, right? The fact that you would have five second cuts or two second cuts Mm. or God, one second cuts in Alien uh, in places, right? Both uh, uh, Ridley Scott and James Cameron, you know, really fundamentally changed what we expect out of the pacing of a science fiction film and everything before Alien, I think, um, has a has a much 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 slower pace, and then those two movies, changed to Bar and everything since then, except for little indie films that can't afford heavy editing, anything that's got any money to it, uh, moves right along, right?
1: Or, or yeah, or the the occasional uh, deliberately paced, uh, deliberately deliberately paced movie, um, like a like a Solaris or something.
0: Sure, or uh, what is it, Under the Skin, or yeah, there's a. There, you're right, fair enough. Um, uh, yeah, and Solaris had money, and they chose to make it very slow, and it flopped. Um, uh, yeah. I, I think it tried to do... I, I tried to take audiences back to that sort of a pace, and like your eight-year-old, audience said, eh, no. That film was also horribly, horribly uh, sold. So, um, yeah. so uh, 70, 80, 88 for science fiction and film is where we're yeah. at. Hey, I have a request for our next film. Let's do. Let's do... Uh, Soderbergh Solaris. Can okay. we do can we do Soderbergh's Solaris without doing um, Tarkovsky's Solaris?
1: Um, I mean, I think uh, if we try to watch both of them, um,
0: I guess Soder- Soderbergh, Wow, Soderbergh Solaris is only
1: ninety eight minutes
0: long. Um, wow. this is, by the way, my favorite film of all time, Soderbergh's Solaris. Right? Wow. Giant, colossal, uh, a commercial failure. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. one of Soderbergh's biggest failures uh, commercially. My favorite film of all time.
1: Uh, let's do it. Yeah. I was uh, okay. I was trying to remember its runtime. Um, uh, the original is 166 minutes. Um, yeah. So maybe right. save that for um, a year or two from now. Um, <laughs> but, Another uh, time.
0: Yeah. And uh, I believe that uh, St- Stanislaw Lem lived long enough to see... Uh, the Soderbergh version of his movie, uh, and yes, he did, and he hated it. <laughs> so, so uh, critics critics liked it. Uh, Lem hated it. Uh, the public uh, ignored it, and it's my favorite film of all time. So, have you seen it before?
1: I have, yes, yeah, I've, have, seen, I've seen okay, both, so uh,
0: but it's been it's been a minute. Got it. I watch it at least once a year. Um, I can't wait to talk about this movie. It changed my life, Tim. It changed how I viewed people and how I viewed my interactions with other human beings in a way that uh, very few, very few films have had that kind of influence on me. So it wow. okay. so, should be a lot of fun. Excellent. All right. And, and you and I have a mutual friend, uh, who, uh, Dr. Hofer, mm-hmm. uh, who was so mad that I recommended this film to him. And he was so he said, oh, my God you wasted 98 minutes of my life in a way that you just, you owe me because you made me sit through this film for 98 minutes. So, uh, oh, well. All right. Well, we got, we got done in an hour and a half, you know, it was a a briskly paced film and uh, we got through it briskly and uh, there we go. Fantastic. Well, it was, uh, yeah, it was great having, having
1: you all over uh, to watch this together in person. I don't know that we'll be able to do that uh, with Solaris, but uh, we'll we'll see where we end up.
0: Oh, I think I do not think your eight year old. I think your eight year old could watch it, <laughs> uh, but I don't think they would enjoy it. I'm pretty sure they would not enjoy it. It's yeah, it's not. It's not. Yeah, I mean maybe, but probably not. You never know. It right. could be a budding Soderbergh fan. <laughs> That's right. My son does not enjoy a lot of film. But he loves, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, The guy who did uh, Royal Tenenbaums and uh, Isle of Dogs and uh, Bottle Rocket. What's his name? Um, Not Paul Thomas Anderson. Anderson. Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson, yeah. So my son does not watch a lot of film, and he is a gigantic. Uh, watches every Wes Anderson film and makes his friends watch Wes Anderson films so that they can appreciate Wes Anderson. So you never know. You never know what uh, what, what your 8-year-old might like. Okay, uh, well, I think uh, that's good. Any, any last words?
1: Uh, no, I think uh, we will be back next time, 2002 Solaris.
0: All right, keep watching science fiction film.
1: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Monty Hall Effect. Our musical themes were written and performed by Guy Ellis. You can find previous episodes and links to all of our content at themontyhalleffect.fireside.fm T-H-E-M-O-N-T-E-H-A-L-L-E-F-F-E-C-T.fireside.fm If you have any thoughts or feedback or questions, you can also contact us at at themontyhalleffect.gmail.com Thanks, and keep watching Science Fiction Films.